Do you do you hear that? Do you hear it? What? There, <laughs> there's something out there. Bennett, do you hear? Whoa! Oh, is that October? <laughs> I think it's October. It's oh, here. it's October. Oh no! Not again! I'm scared. either of you ever seen a work of art that either just completely absorbed you or disoriented you? Uh, are you referring to the Stendhal Syndrome? Potentially. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have. I have never been institutionalized uh, because of a piece of art or, you know, uh, taken to the hospital. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually think, uh, I think most art lovers have had you know, movie, music, whatever, it have had some kind of, like, quasi-religious experience in the movie theater. I mean, that's why we're spending our Sundays on podcasts, you know, talking about them, <laughs> is because there was this time we had an out-of-body experience uh, at the movie theater and, you know, listening to music or at the art museum or, or somewhere. I mean, mine, the one that stuck with me was going to Star Wars when I was, like, five and just feeling just completely lost inside the movie and and kind of looking around in the theater sometime in the middle and and just remembering that i was in a theater and that's a feeling that's hard to get when you're older but um reminded me a lot of uh, uh argento's stendhal syndrome and and her getting absorbed into the artworks mm-hmm. what about you bennett so again, I've never, yeah, I've never been formally diagnosed with Stendhal syndrome. <laughs> it is a phrase I use quite a lot, though, on Twitter in talking about um, what a what an overwhelming buffet I find cinema to be. I'm constantly yeah. overcome. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I uh, I really try to treat every day like a chance to eat at the trough. So when I'm watching like three or four, like five baggers back to back, I'll often tweet like, "I've got Stendhal syndrome over here." Um, <laughs> one thing that sticks out is um, Scott McDonald's intro to cinema class. One day he programmed uh, Window Water Baby Moving, Blood of the Beasts, and uh, uh, The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes, another brackage, all on like the same day. And that was that was an intense experience. I remember that being one of the times that I was sort of like really uh, overcome and like unable to articulate the effect uh, a bunch of art had had on me. But no, I'm with you. I, I um, it's it's why you go to the cinema, you know, to feel overcome like that. I mean, just recently, uh, Elvis, the ending of Elvis, really. Got me to a point where I was uh, overcome with emotion. And uh, that is, you know, akin to Stendhal syndrome in a way. It's one of those phrases like uh, Proustian moment that I use all the time. And uh, another one that comes to mind, which was more of a Proustian moment, I sort of wrote about this in my my essay on Cold War a couple years ago. Um, That movie, the first um, production number from the uh, company in that, like sent me back in time to when I was a kid and we saw the, the troupe that it's sort of based on. And I literally just started like bawling. It was like this incredible yeah. experience. Um, that is probably the closest I've ever come to like spreading paint on myself. I think. Yeah. <laughs> no, and that's and you get even little touches. I mean, anytime you start weeping in a film, I mean, you've lost touch with reality, right? I mean, the there's nothing to weep about. I mean, you're just sitting in a theater. It's you know, it's all right, make believe. Yeah. 
so it is a, a kind of uh, a form of um, uh, of losing yourself, uh, you know, going to the movies. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I think that's why he was inter so interested in making a movie about it. I uh, yeah, I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but yeah. ahead of ourselves. But there's a there's a sequence in the film where she meets a guy, Michelle, who is uh, I think it's Michelle, right? And he's he's talking about all of the Italian painters he loves, and she's yes. going like this and this and like. Everyone is just like uh, everyone's like in reverie over these painters. I feel like if you if you replace that with like listing off, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood and Abel Ferrara and Sue yeah. Friedrich, that that'd be that'd be me. <laughs> Marie is his name. Marie, that's it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, close. absolutely. There, I mean, there's a in Scorsese's first film, the who's who's that knocking on my door? There's a very similar uh, scene with Harvey Keitel where he's just like, if you know, talking to this girl and sort of having the worst date ever because he's just talking about movies uh, how much he loves know? john wayne right yeah, yeah and how much he loves john wayne and uh, you know to this girl who i'm sure is uh, uh noticing that he's not really uh, asking her any <laughs> questions about herself uh, yeah, I, I had a similar experience to that actually going to see uh, a star is born on a date the bradley cooper one i feel like my being like overcome with emotion was very yes. unattractive <laughs> was very unattractive yeah yeah, yeah it's a beautiful movie you know well, Bennett, that's two episodes in a row you've gotten a Star is Born sorry, reference sorry, in before wait, wait, six I've got a lynch. I've got a Lynch reference queued up, too, and a, I don't mean to be the CinemaSins guy, so get ready. We're going to hit all the beats. I hope, uh, hope everyone's got their drinks ready at home. Well, that's why we're here for Bennett hitting all those beats. But we are here because it is once again October, and we're doing the same thing we did last year, but we're taking it international. So my name's Craig Wright. I'm the host of Split Picks. And this is our fourth year of doing October Horror and the second year of doing a split pick series on some of the great directors. we got to give credit to Jim Hickox, though, because he said, what if instead of looking at more American greats this year, we take it international? And I think it was everyone at once went, okay, Italy, Japan. So we all decided Italy's the first place we wanted to go. So this year, we're going to talk about all things giallo, black gloves, excess blood, <laughs> All of those good things that the Italians are so great at. Um, if you're tuning in for the first time, Split Picks is a show where we pick a director and each guest selects a movie that falls outside of their most popular or most talked about films, and we put them head to head to talk about what makes these, are, or why these are interesting parts of a director's career. Bennett, you've been here many times before. How are you feeling about this voyage to Italian horror? Uh, loving it, yeah. I um, got to really dive into Argento over the last few months. I've watched most of his films now, and uh, love what I've seen. Um, as we'll talk about a little later, I think even the quote-unquote bad films are uh, mostly a lot of fun. Yeah. And Steve, you're joining us for the third time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And I'm also excited. I mean, I used it as an opportunity to fill in some gaps. I hadn't seen some of the the earlier ones, and I sort of watched those. And also uh, caught up with not all of the later ones, but uh, 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 a good helping of them. Excellent. And Steve, did I hear a rumor that you might be working on a new film project yourself? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm I'm cutting uh, some films now that I uh, some shorts I uh, shot, and they're all uh, comedies about uh, artists. Okay. Um, and so it sort of goes along with some of the, the writing I've been doing for you guys on uh, artists on film, art and artists on film. Awesome. That sounds great. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cool. Well, you guys ready to get going? All right. Yeah. 
Let's do it, yeah. Cool. So we're taking a look at a director today who has made some of the greatest horror movies, moments, and menaces ever captured on film. We'll be debating this portion later, but he's also had some flops and some oopsies. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Steve, let's start with you. What film did you select today, and briefly, what stands out about it to you? Well, I chose the Stendhal Syndrome. The Stendhal Syndrome is uh, 1996, um, and uh, it stars his daughter, um, uh, Asia Argento, sometimes here called Asia Argento, but I believe it's pronounced Asia. Um, and uh, it is about, uh, basically what happened is uh, he read an article about this condition in Florence, uh, which is the largest center of Renaissance art in the world. So it's... Uh, it's like uh, it's like this sort of <laughs> glowing sphere of uh, Renaissance uh, energy, <laughs> art energy, and apparently there are multiple multiple cases in the psychiatric hospital of people being put into such a state from all of the Renaissance art uh, that it sort of sends them into kind of a disoriented fugue state. Um, and that they've given this a name, the Stendhal syndrome, being overcome by uh, a work of art. Uh, and he was very interested in this, uh, you know, read the book and wanted to write a movie about it. Um, and, uh, and I'm very, I'm an art teacher uh, and a filmmaker, and I'm very interested in it. And so I wanted to take a look at this film I hadn't seen before. It also features, I've been doing a lot of writing on how you visualize the artistic experience basically like how do you put that into a movie someone's relationship with a painting both the artist but also the audience and this has some like just uh incredible like virtuoso uh cinematic moments where uh anna is overcome by an artwork and steps inside the painting so that's what um that's what drew uh drew me to it yeah it's a very cool movie i'm very glad you picked this one bennett you uh you your choice is bold you uh (laughs) what tunnel are you taking us down today (laughs) yeah i picked his 1998 adaptation of the phantom of the opera um i just think it's a great film i think it throws uh, a lot of stuff at the wall i think a whole lot of it sticks i think there are some really unusual optical effects that i've only seen in like literally one other film um, that's Ari Romare's The Lady and the Duke. I think it's like the only film I could think of with anything like this. Um, Are you yeah, talking about I, the rooftop I, I just, stuff? Yeah, the rooftop <laughs> stuff. It's just, for me, I, I, I shared Eric, a review on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, Tim and Eric, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's, I'll call it half hokey. Um, yeah. But I think also, and we talked about this a little bit off mic, um, so one of the things that really defines Gialli and Argento's films in particular is this sort of dreamlike structure, you know, with a gun to your head, you couldn't describe the plot of a lot of these movies. Uh, fan of the opera he's moored to a classic piece of literature that's not only a well-known piece of literature but has a plot that is you know widely adapted fan of the opera is one of those things like cyrano or like romeo and juliet that's been interpolated in a lot of different ways we all sort of basically know the format he kind of adapts it in his own film opera probably my favorite of his films um so it's it's, it's cool to see him on the rails in a certain way and it's great to see how uh, Argento defines on the rails uh, because it is uh, I don't know, a film that most people would call uh, unusual to say the least. I, I, you guys both described it as strange certainly before we uh, we got on the mic. Um, 
I, uh, yeah, I, one of the great things about diving into his work in preparation for this has been watching some of the, the kind of less renowned films, the newer ones, and realizing that they've got a lot to recommend them. Um, and uh, I think these two in particular are sort of bridges between his classic era and what's regarded as, you know, some embarrassingly bad films. And uh, I think these are the, the cream of the post-80s crop, um, but also... I think if you if you go in with these films and you sort of learn to appreciate these films, I think you can find some stuff to like in uh, in Sleepless and Trauma and Do You Like Hitchcock even. I haven't seen Giallo, so I can't I can't speak for Giallo. Uh, by all accounts, it's not very good, <laughs> but uh, I'm interested to see it. So I do want to say before we get going, this is not going to be a career look at Argento. If you want a great look at what he's done, everything about him, the Pink Smoke podcast, they have an almost yes, four and a half hour episode. episode where they go through everything. We're not going to do that. We're looking at a snapshot, and Bennett, like you mentioned, this is a really interesting pivot point because these movies were back-to-back in his career. I tend to agree with what you said, where there's one that's pretty darn great and one that's pretty darn bad. <laughs> I guess you didn't say it's bad, but you know, it is his career really changed in this era. But yeah, we're going to take a look at the Stendhal Syndrome first because it was made first we'll go chronologically but steve you mentioned that you know he'd read an article about stendhal syndrome and i did pick up his book fear his autobiography and uh, in it he mentions that when he read that article he had a flashback to when he was 14 or 15 his family was on vacation in greece and they went to visit the parthenon and he says he experienced stendhal syndrome himself and he could feel the faces in the walls talking to him he kind of felt like the horses were running past him and he passed out almost and fainted and couldn't find his way home because he lost his parents and so it took him hours to get back to the hotel but once he read that article he decided it was time to make that movie and so that's where it came from and yeah 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 i i I read that story too and i I love it because it, it sort of says you know what's good about him uh, you know, he's an incredibly uh, sensitive uh, artist who feels space. <laughs> he feels physical space. You can. The beginning of this film is, you know, whatever you might say about the second half of this film, the beginning of this film really is uh, magnificent. <laughs> yeah. And it's you're following Anna, who's played by his daughter, Asiya, and she's going through the museum in Florence and she's being slowly enveloped into the artwork. It starts speaking to her. You start seeing little flashes of noises. Uh, The painting comes alive. You're hearing sounds of the painting. And uh, at one moment, he's looking at this uh, person drowned. She's looking at this uh, person drowning in the painting. And Argento cuts to this sort of early CGI uh, imagery of, you know, floating over water and sort of, you know, you get kind of a real sort of three-dimensional quality. And that bridges us over into a cut where she dives, she's diving into the painting and is in the ocean. It's such a clever way of making the experience of viewing a kind of flat, not kind of, but a flat two-dimensional artwork and how affecting, how fully four-dimensional that can feel uh, when you're enveloped in a painting. 
and he's able to use that kind of early CGI graphic to kind of, to make you sort of push through and enter that painting with her. And then in the in the uh, in the undersea world, this giant grouper fish comes up uh, and forces this kiss on her, uh, and sort of covers over his mouth. And that's basically, in a nutshell, what the movie is. It's it's this experience of going inside uh, a piece of artwork and then danger appearing, and that it actually injuring or hurting you and not being able to get out. This experience he had, I, I think, in the museum when he was uh, when he was a boy is something I think a lot of artists have, uh, like we were talking about, and art lovers have with art, a, a feeling of being completely overwhelmed by it. And I think the dark uh, the dark corners uh, of his uh, personality and who he is, he wants to kind of explore uh, uh, how bad that can get, and it gets quite horrific. Yeah. So Steve, I want to pause you quick right there. You mentioned you've had a series about the artistic experience being shown on film. Can you just give us a little intro about how you started thinking about that and where the series has taken you? Well, um, I think because I'm an art, I mean, I teach film, so I'm an art teacher. So it's on my mind a lot. Like, uh, you know, that's sort of what I think about every day. Uh, and so when I see films, particular artists, uh, biographies, biopics, uh, I, I find myself consistently o- underwhelmed uh, with how literal they can be towards sort of translating that experience uh, that that artist has making their work into a film. That they can think that you just kind of plink plonk down a song or do a couple brush strokes and you're really getting the essence of... Uh, uh, who that artist is, and uh, uh, any kind of reproduction on film of the experience an audience might have with that artwork. Uh, and I just find there are a lot of interesting sort of cinematic challenges in doing that, in translating uh, another art form into cinema, uh, things that you wouldn't, and I found, you know, teaching that students don't normally think of that you know, the moment you put a painting on film, you're even though a painters create depth in a painting, it flattens the painting once you put it on film. It's just it's completely flattened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you know what I was talking about there earlier with what Argento is doing is he's bringing back the third dimension into the painting, and that's of course what painters study with learning pers- rules of perspective and all of that. But when you put something uh, like a painting on film, it's not the same as seeing it in the museum. And you've got Argento is someone whose art is always kind of in the wings. He has some films like uh, Tenebrae that is um, about a writer, but a lot of times it's in the wings. It's the Dance Academy in in Suspiria. It's opera. It doesn't often take art on like head on it's often in the in the the wings as i said it's sort of a milieu yeah yeah Mm -hmm. what argento captures really well with this sort of primitive cgi here i'm glad that it's not just her walking into like a picture of the painting it's it's some new kind of like third version it's it's not quite just a picture of the painting it's not the painting itself it's this trying to create some sort of like new space where she can walk in it it's it's very much the experience of like uh, coming to terms with like actually seeing a painting that you've like read a lot about or like seen recreated a bunch, um, and I think that yes. works really well. I think it's like it, it's like all the more effective for what's 
uh, quote unquote bad about it. The fact that it's like primitive looking CGI. We're almost like watching her paint it in her head over again or something. Yeah, there there is. I mean, I like that you pointed out that because there's um, if she had just painted into that walked into that painting literally it is almost too literal <laughs> you know uh, just to kind of oh i'm inside the painting look at me you know it is an actual experience that you go through and it's cinematic you're you're cutting to soaring through water and then a cut and she dives and she's in the ocean you know uh, it uses editing uh to create the brushstroke and that's what you have to do is figure out how do i change brushstrokes <laughs> into cuts you know how do i actually translate this into film oh and it just builds to that moment so beautiful oh, yes. too. he he builds it that the same way he would to like a big opening murder in another of his films this is really one of his best sequences in all of his work uh it does have that slezzy set ben it says that slow build to it there's a wonderful moment before where she gets taken over by the kind of violent screams in a more uh warlike painting uh, and she goes to try to touch the surface of the painting, and then an alarm goes off. You know, it, he's bringing us right up to the edge of that that veil between the artistic world and the real world. Uh, and then that builds up to her eventually just going all the way in. But it's really nursed. First, she's outside the museum. She's passing all of these statues that sort of uh, loom above her. Uh, and he's so graceful with his camera. His camera kind of slides by those uh, low, and they kind of, and they loom over us. We're really feeling ourselves traveling through the space uh, of outside the museum and then inside. It's very immersive, uh, and that's what I just think. That's really, really his great gift is he really understands how to pull you into a space and pull and get space to equal a psychological state uh so it's it's uh that to me is uh his real gift uh his his knack to get a trip through space to get you into someone's mind or psychological state and steve i just want to point out that i i think you really summed this whole series up perfectly when you wrote about john carpenter's in the mouth of madness because that is essentially a, a movie about a guy reading a book and you, know, yes. you just talk about how he creates this whole world where instead of just being like on page 64 this happens it's like oh no there's the monster right there and i i just yeah. really love that essay if you haven't read it yet just do yourself a favor and go check that out well thank you for the pitch and it is i do like that film and it's a, it's a you know i think like bennett's film and like my film these are films that people don't watch as much uh, they're lesser. They're sort of deeper cuts. Yes. Uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of value uh, uh, in these things. So before Stendhal Syndrome, Argento's last film was Trauma. Now this was yeah. a movie that he made partially because he had a family member who suffered from anorexia, and he was trying to essentially raise awareness in a way. There's also a lot more that is uh, dark in that film, but I really like Trauma personally. I think it's a really good one, but. I think it's probably important with this movie to say it is not going to be for everyone. There are no. some very graphic scenes of, you know, violence and sexual violence. And if that's something you're not interested in seeing, I would just go ahead and say skip this movie. But Yeah, I would uh, steer way away from it yes. uh, for that. It, it's upsetting. And it's good that you bring up trauma because 
this movie, I mean, I think the frustration with this movie for me is that it is about someone's relationship to art. It is also about trauma. Yeah. It is difficult to make those two things match up. Mm -hmm. And I find it a little frustrating. You kind of have to work it out on paper. But it's one of the things about Argento is that I do, he writes, we talked, Bennett already brought up, he does write things in a kind, with a kind of dream-like structure. Yeah. And as we know from our dreams, they don't always make sense. <laughs> they often make sudden non sequiturs. It can be challenging. And uh, um, there are real advantages to that. There are some moments in in Stendhal syndrome that are some of the most frightening things I think he's ever done. And part of it is the way it just lurches forward suddenly. After uh, Anna's been attacked uh, by the killer and rapist in this, uh, she passes out during the attack and she wakes up in the back of a car and he's in the middle of attacking this other woman and he shoots her through, shoots the other victim through the cheek, the bullet goes through her cheek and in one and out the other, and then he looks at her through that cheek hole. And it's, now, that's all very gross and on its own, but it's really the the leap forward into the unknown that's so frightening. You have no idea where she is, how she got there. The omission of all of that is really terrifying. Uh, and the disorientation and the claustrophobia of being there. She's stuck in some little compact car with this woman getting attacked. Uh, and then, of course, the the eyeball through the uh, cheek hole kind of staring right at us. It's, um, uh, it's really uh, uh, quite brutal and quite horrifying. <laughs> uh, and yet, you know, here we are. You know, as people, I think all three of us watch a lot of horror uh, you know, this is kind of what we watch for, these kind of very intense moments that we survive through. Uh, there is, I think, for horror lovers, a kind of therapeutic quality to surviving all of this ghastly uh, uh, business, you know? Um, and I think certainly Argento, who, uh, uh, you know, made a career of this, is, uh, is something he thinks about uh, quite a lot. And really quick, just to back up a bit. So in the film, Ozzy Argento plays, she's like a 19-year-old detective, and she's on the anti-rape squad, and she's trying to find this guy who began as a rapist, and now he's raping and murdering people, and they don't know how to stop him. And then he tracks her down in a turn, and that's where it goes He gives her a tip. Uh, I think he turns in an anonymous tip that the killer is going to be at the Uffizi gallery where, where she has the first sort of Stendhal syndrome episode. You alluded earlier to the fact, Steve, that it's sort of a bifurcated film. I would say it's almost a film that's like a sequel to itself twice over. There is the first sort of episode of Stendhal syndrome. She's assaulted by this guy um, who at first is like comforting her, uh, comforting her uh, after the, the incident. She's assaulted by this guy around like half an hour in um, is put on leave from the police force she kills him like 20 minutes later, and then we have a whole hour of the film afterwards. So it's almost yeah. like three films in one. There are kind of three definite um, switches in you know what's going on. Uh, the tone of the film almost seems to change. I um, 
yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the disorientation though of the scene where she almost seems to like come to in the car because I had to I had to watch that like a second time. I, I didn't know what was going on. I was like, is she disassociating? Is she imagining this happening to someone else or something like that? And I, I, I you're you're right to say too. I think it's one of the more genuinely like frightening, upsetting things uh, in his filmography, and um, it's. I think to the film's credit that it exists alongside something as just patently goofy as, you know, kissing the giant grouper. Yeah. yeah. Like, and when, when you describe a nightmare to someone, it's oftentimes filled with something that is objectively goofy followed by something that's objectively horrific. And yeah. in describing it, you find yourself, you know, trying to make sense of it. And that's oftentimes how it feels describing his movies. Uh, this one in particular, I really think um, both, both of the movies we pick, I think, are great examples of like what everyone acknowledges he does well. And then also where people think he lost the thread is yeah. like very <laughs> exemplified in both of these movies. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and that those, that is, that streams for you, isn't it? That you suddenly turn around and you're in, you know, you're underwater and you're drowning. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something he does very well. And then he's got to figure out as a writer how do I thread those moments all into something? Because our dreams never really end. We just wake up. But a movie has to end. It has to have a beginning, middle, and end. And that's sort of, I think, the challenge of a lot of his uh, proclivities towards that kind of structure. So there's a great quote in Fear. I, I, I just want to throw this your way because I think this is pretty much exactly what we're talking about. So he's talking about how Freud has influenced his movies and how he's trying to you know, keep the psychological things going so he says this my cinema is one of ideas made up of visions and nightmares and open to a variety of readings the outside world the chaos that governs man's destiny has never troubled my imagination because what i always have staged is the fantastic universe that's in the darkness of my mind protected by an inaccessible barrier a place i established from the start where the grayness of reality is never found and this is a movie where you know she walks through a painting and then she's in with her police friends and then she turns back around and she's in the car essentially it's just there is no reality in a lot of this movie and it's crazy (laughs) no it's an it's an internal landscape he's shooting you know and that's what's wonderful about him you know uh you know sometimes i think you know i don't know if this was before we started but bennett was talking about you know the weakest parts i think even as for his fans of his movies are these long expositional scenes that have to explain this cuckoo bird plot of like why this monkey has a razor or, or what, you know, or whatever, you know? And these are the parts that I don't think even his fans like, you know, uh, it's almost like you wish he would just completely uh, leave reality uh, and just kind of drift off and not need those things. Uh, But, you know, he's, he's doing these, He's trying to make uh, he's trying to make some kind of logical uh, sense of uh, uh, of things, and you know I think to his credit this film, which I you know, we'll have to get into the plot a little bit more, but this film I do think it, there's some psychological accuracy to it. It's not all just like you know people going crazy in a kind of general meaningless way. Uh, it is about the effects of trauma real trauma on the psyche and what that the horror of what that can do to someone that they can absolutely lose themselves and i I feel there's kind of more authenticity to the subject matter 
than I than there is in like his earlier stuff. This actually does seem accurate, and the basic plot of the you know film uh, is that you know she is attacked twice by this person and and raped uh, not graphically but you know with a lot of emphasis on the pain and trauma of it. Uh, so we really experience that with her, uh, and then she kills him, but she doesn't know if she kills him. She thinks he might not be dead. Uh, and so the second half of the film, the question is really, is he in her head or not? And her personality is starting to change. She's starting to wear a wig, uh, a blonde wig, kind of like a Marnie or something. And she's starting to date again. But, you know, so the thing is, it, it really is about losing oneself, you know, f through trauma. You know, and I think the trouble with the movie is that it's also about losing oneself in art and how those two things connect is a little fuzzy. <laughs> I feel. And I, yeah. Yeah. It, it can be almost like crass the way those are like juxtaposed against yeah. one another, I think. But yeah, I don't know. I think that was one of like the interesting lessons I've learned in like reading more about Argento and watching all of these films. I think it's so easy when like someone has like so much like bloodshed in their films, especially like a Giallo director where it's all yeah. about just like elaborate setups and like the characters are these like ciphers who are just like in mouse traps to be like garroted by some guy in black gloves, basically. Yeah. Yes. I, it, it's very easy to dismiss that as like glib, but like, I don't read more about Argento and maybe everyone just says this about their films, but he seems like someone who really like his psychology informs these films. He's really wrestling with like his psyche in this stuff. It's not just about, you know, setting people up to kill them. I don't know. He, he uh, and I, I, I would I think agree this with film, that. trauma. There's a lot of those where, where it comes across and it's clear he can, he can uh, marry those impulses. Just, just being like a gross Vulcarian and also being someone who's, you know, wrestling with a lot in their head. So Dario Argento really made his name making giallo films and one of the biggest critiques of these is that they treat women terribly. There are violent murders and horrific endings. Um, in his autobiography, Argento's answer to the question, why do you always kill women, is very simple. He just says, because I prefer to work with women. In my films, I kill mo women more because I love them more. <laughs> That it's a very straightforward answer, but this one especially has a lot of violence, and I think it is important to note that he made this film with his daughter as the star. It seems like there are no lines the two of them will not cross together, but I also think this is one of Asia's best performances, if not her best. I threw a lot at you there. Feel free to take any aspect that you want to answer, but there's a lot there. <laughs> uh, she is really good in this movie. And I, I, I mentioned before that I think these movies, uh, in, in addition to being great examples of like what Argento does well, have a lot of, uh, the, the negatives of his filmography and, uh, the, I don't know, arguably exploitative nature of his casting of his daughter is definitely one of those things. And these movies both, both, uh, have that, uh, in spades. I think it's interesting that, um, you know, a, a filmmaker who kind of contended with a lot of charges of misogyny, um, you know, arguably rightly, there's certainly a lot of violence against women in his films. I think it's interesting to see him take on the rape revenge thriller here. Kind of a, a, a touchy subgenre in a world of touchy subgenres that always kind of courts, uh, you know, controversy and discussions about the, the gender politics at play. And yeah, I don't know, as is characteristic of him, I don't know that he escapes unscathed. I, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I've not read uh, any like feminist criticism of this film, but I, I imagine there would be a lot to uh, a lot to take issue with in addition to maybe a lot to praise. <laughs>
just my non-answer there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, the thing I would say about this film is is that, you know, I think it takes the effect of sexual violence incredibly seriously. Yeah. yeah and it is, it is not done in any way that focuses on anything but the pain of the woman involved. It's, there's nothing really, there's nothing fun or exploitative about it. Now, the fact that he's able to use his daughter doing it, I find very, very strange. Yes. Uh, as, a, <laughs> as a father and a filmmaker. Uh, but I don't know what to say. I just, you know, when I look at the work itself, and it is not terribly exploitative, and it's really quite serious in its the psychological ramifications of this. That's kind of what the movie's all about. And so I, I, I'm okay with this movie, <laughs> personally, uh, but I would not recommend it to anybody, you know, who's not, I don't know, you have to have a little bit of a, a thick skin for this. I find those two rape scenes are extremely painful. But if the movie doesn't really work, if you don't share her trauma, because she yeah. makes a yeah. sudden switch at the end, where you see she's murdering people. And there have been many switches like this throughout Argento's career. This is one of the only ones I've really believed. Yes. Because you, yeah. you've shared what she's gone through. And it's like, yeah, you, you sort of, the psychological dots connect, where you're like, yes, she has lost herself now, and she has, you've sort of tracked her through becoming her predator. You know, um, and uh, so, you know, this is a kind of area of, you know, working in horror that there are very few movies that you can give like a enthusiastic double yeah. thumbs up to. You know, it's tough. I mean, I find Frenzy is a very uh, interesting and I think more successful uh, film, but it's also one I never feel like watching. You know, this is a difficult Thing to put yourself through. I, I, you're, you're right to point out that I think the emphasis here is really on the, the traumatic uh, nature of the experience. I think it's really one of the only movies I've ever seen that spends this long looking at sexual assault where it never seems like it's at all trying to titillate, at all trying to make um, a crass spectacle of it. It really is about experiencing this and then, yeah, understanding kind of where that turn happens. Um, I think it's crucial, Craig, you mentioned this in your notes document, the first rape scene, uh, he cuts her lip with like a razor. And I think that's a really good example of something Argento does really well, which is like showing his characters experiencing like tiny bits of pain or like near it, not tiny, but like relatable everyday sort of pain, mm -hmm. um, cutting your finger, cutting your lip. Um, I, the most famous examples, of course, like the needles against the eyelid mm -hmm. in opera, you can practically feel that. Um, he, he does that really well. And I think having that like really pretty brutal rape scene, have something like that to sort of start it off, puts you in that headspace and also like, uh, reminds you uh, like the sort of gestures he's working with. Like, this is not the depiction of sexual assault by way of like Game of Thrones, you know, mm -hmm. um, I don't know to, to, to <laughs> shit on one of my, my favorite hobby horses, of course, um, never miss the opportunity to, uh, to, to give it to Prestige TV, who I think, I don't know, are, are constantly depicting sexual assault in a way that's much more crass than, than really anything Argento does that is worse. Two quick things from me here. So I will say the first time I watched this movie, I 
it was so disturbing. It was like, I think it was a good movie, but it was like, it was, I was totally unsure of it. But then watching again this week, it was like, I knew what was coming. So I was much more able to get on the wavelength of the film to, you know, think about why he's doing it. And seeing it that way was like, okay, he took this place as he never went elsewhere in his career. And it's, I, I don't think he has had a darker film than this. But Bennett, really quick, there is another great quote from him in the in his book where he talks about how to make pain relatable for viewers. And he says, most people don't know what a bullet in the stomach feels like, but they know what burning yourself on boiling water or cutting your hand on a serrated edge feels like. So that's why he's so interested in, you know, eyes and you know just smaller Teeth. yeah there's a lot of yeah. these like yeah like little like everyday traumas that happen um and that yeah i don't know it makes that scene something that like everyone can like instantly relate to um which yeah i don't know makes it all that much like re-traumatizing for the viewer even yeah i mean you watch enough of his films you do have to ask why do we watch this yeah uh because i'm not <laughs> watching it for just because i was assigned to it like i've always watched argento and I've always watched these kind of movies, and you do have to ask why. And you know you're not alone. You know there are millions of people who watch these. And there is something about the process of watching people go through pain and then surviving it or, or not surviving it you, the audience surviving it, that is some kind of therapy for us, some kind of safe way to process our fears. Uh, and knowing, you know, I think going back to what you're sort of saying about, you know, the potential accusations of this, uh, you know, especially involving his daughter, I think he would say that, you know, it is make-believe, you know, uh, this is make-believe. You know, when you shoot a scene like that, you're dividing it up into cuts. The violence happens in the edit room. <laughs> That's where the violence happens. And, you know, when you put the cuts together. And there is something in this process of watching this that is a kind of therapy for the audience in letting out their repressed feelings and their repressed fear. There's a shot, it sort of references this in the movie, there's a shot when she's, after she's uh, survived the second assault and killed him, she's brought into this tribunal of, of cops who have to decide uh -huh. if she did a good job as a cop or not. And under the table, she kind of cuts herself, you know, releasing... Under her fingernail, incredible. Oh, yeah, oh, releasing a little bit. It's very it, yeah. painful, but... You know, this is kind of what horror is. There is a, an effect every time you see a head chopped off or something. There is a kind of like, it cuts through your numbness and gives you this kind of release and you are safe and you are alive. And, you know, I, I don't know how else to, I mean, Bennett, you watch a lot of horror. Why are we drawn to watching these cut heads being cut off? and uh, these limbs being severed, uh, you know, why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, there is something cathartic about seeing people ex uh, escape. I mean, I, I've been watching the Saw movies lately, and I've had reason to reflect on those, and I think those are movies where you're very literally watching someone, like, trying to escape uh, a scenario. And yes. I, yeah, I don't know. I think there's something pleasant to... Pleasant is the wrong word. <laughs> there's something... Uh, cathartic therapeutic pleasing yeah about about like seeing it happen or about being able to imagine yourself there 
um, and like safely experiencing. I mean, I don't know. We're, we're we're in an era where like VR is allegedly becoming like more and more popular. So I think we're seeing these like immersive experiences become more and more popular. It'll be interesting to see where that sort of uh, coincides with like cinema, and if we see people like immersing themselves in like horror movies because. I don't know. Like, I feel like there would be a market for it, right? Getting their own hands cut off. Yeah. I think it's like the logical next step. Grim. <laughs> I do have to wonder. I, I, I imagine his answer, and I'm sure he has answered this question. I imagine his answer for like casting Aja in all of his roles would be, just, just going off of what he said about why women get killed in his movies more often than men, I imagine he would say something along the lines of, like, better I'd be doing this with, like, someone I know well like someone who I have this sort of relationship with than like some actor who might as well be a stranger. Well, so he does talk about that in his book because he says originally Bridget Fonda was supposed to be the lead and um, he started talking about the role with Asia and he realized that she grew up in Hollywood because she was on all of his sets as a child and he realized that she could separate the film from reality and so he knew that she could do this character justice and understood the meaning behind it and so that's why he wanted her to be in it. Still think there's some interesting uh, choices, yeah. but <laughs> no, there is, and yeah, it's very interesting. But I don't feel like I can offer any real <laughs> insight into it because it really has to do with their psychology and their particular relationship. I mean, there's that relationship is strange, but I don't, I can't say anything intelligent. I don't mean strange, but like complicated. Yes. Like they they were estranged for a while because she, I mean she became a star and then he needed her and you know to get a movie made and she got busy with her career and then of course uh, you know she ended up in uh, uh, some scandals yes uh, you know a scandal involving uh, sexual assault that she was accused of so there's like lots of layers of stuff here and yet it's like we don't really know what the truth is. I don't. I sort of feel like I can't talk about it because I have no idea what the real truth is and what I've read on the news. Whereas the film is the film, and you know, you can watch the film and you know, you're you can say something about it. It, it works how it works. Yeah. You know, there is there is something going on there, um, and it's maybe not completely healthy. Yeah. Well, Steve, I want to throw this question to you just to return to you know the experience of art on film. There's a really incredible sequence where Anna goes home and she begins painting and she has these crazy like red, white, and black faces that are just screaming. But we learn that she's had Stendhal syndrome basically her whole life. You know, they flash back to when she had an experience as a child in a museum. But then we see her cover herself to her whole body in paint. And she essentially becomes <laughs> a painting. So I'm curious what you think this switch does for the movie and how does this relate to seeing the artistic experience on film? Well, during her trauma, I mean, he, he is still following that thread of someone who is an art lover now trying to get it out of their system. They have trauma now and they're trying to get it out of their system. I mean, the issue here is that there actually isn't an artist in the film. This is sort of her kind of art therapy on the wall uh, and it doesn't work the trauma is too intense and maybe her kind of ability to get it processed through art she doesn't it doesn't work <laughs> you know and that that covering of uh, you know covering herself in paint it reads to me as like this is my ultimate sort of uh, expression of uh, failure with painting to get out pain it's a kind of writhing rather than a kind of celebration of like 
I've gotten it out and uh, I'm better now. It's the kind of futility of art being able to deal with this level of trauma from what she's been through. Yeah, it's like the it's like this cruder version of being immersed in a painting. Uh, it's like if I can't walk into a painting in any sort of constructive way, let me like become a painting. It, I don't know. I, I wonder to what extent this is a um, like an autobiographical film for him. To what extent this is about sort of like wrestling with uh, being fixated on art and making art and like what it's done to him. Because I don't know. I think there's something interesting to be said about like how she's both a victim and like a victimizer in the film, and like to what extent he feels that way as an artist. You know. Like he's obviously as a director, you know, puts people through a lot of stuff and has obviously created all of these horrifying images, but to what extent is he like consumed by the art creation process? To what extent does he feel like he's uh, been victimized there? Yeah, I mean I, I do think it's there's a lot of autobiographical stuff in here. I mean, these are his obsessions certainly that are guiding the structure of this uh uh script i i mean i he's the thing i know about his autobiography that i think you see here you know he struggled with censorship and what is appropriate to show and do like his whole career uh and this is really about art that hurts that's what this movie is you know i don't know if we really covered it well enough in the plot summary but the essentially the killer here is using her stendhal syndrome as a kind of way to anesthetize her and then attack her uh and so this really is about art that hurts you know the uh and that's what the accusations uh, against him are that and i think probably are of most horror artists is that you're hurting us it's an extension of the the kind of trigger uh, conversation is that you're triggering our trauma with your horror and this is uh beyond what is acceptable drama you know uh and uh, so i think that that issue is interesting to him i think part of the problem with the film is that it's about a couple of things you know i i sort of i think it kind of alternates in its meanings instead of like coheres into one meaning <laughs> it kind of alternates into different conversation topics about you know, about trauma, about sort of the role of, you know, the horror artist or, you know, uh, and about the, our relationship with art, you know, and the director's relationship with art. It's kind of alternating between uh, these things rather than being about one thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's, to me, that's what makes it a little frustrating. But I really like the pieces of it. Like, uh, I, I've talked to people who just kind of like the first half of this movie. I actually like the second half of the movie. I kind of just wish it was, I wish it had a different first half to match that second half. <laughs> you know, it sort of reminds me of Marnie, which I really like, you know, a, a sort of psychological uh, exploration in which you're also kind of locked out of the person's experience there's sort of something's changing in them and there's a mystery inside them that you're trying to uh, uh, figure out and you get these little glimpses of it it's a movie that desperately needs a rewatch for me i've always found it sort of inscrutable but it's a good comparison yeah, yeah. I, I would say they definitely uh they definitely have a lot in common uh the second half grew on me on same, a rewatch same. i watched this twice in two days um I would not say this should be the first Argento anyone goes to, but um, should be should be high on the list of uh, kind of like deep cuts to check out for sure. Mm -hmm. I would agree because I think it's like 
it's just so easy. I think if you if you think you know what you're getting into with Argento, if you think you know Gialli because of kind of like modern riffs on Gialli, which by the way, two things that need to go away in like contemporary horror movies are riffs on Gialli and riffs on Polanski. Uh, if I get an, if I never see another riff on the Apartment trilogy again, perfect. Um, <laughs> I, like if you think you know what you're getting into, it's very easy to sort of dismiss it all as like style over substance, as as just sort of like empty excess and colors and killing and gloves and like attractive women. But like you watch a movie like this, and there's so much going on. There's so many ideas in like the soup here on top of all of like the signifiers that you know. Once you're prepped, once you've seen a handful of uh, Argento films, this is like a perfect one to really dive into and sort of test whether or not he's a filmmaker that you want to, you know, really commit to. So that's probably a good portion to start wrapping Stendhal syndrome up. So I just want to throw this your way because I think it's interesting. Argento said with this, he was trying to make a more experimental film than he had in the past. He feels it's one of his most interesting films. Um, Where do you feel this lands in his overall catalog? Well, I mean, Bennett kind of touched at it. I, I think of the ones that I've seen in the, the non-kind of classic period, which I would end with opera, probably. I, I like opera a lot. I mean, I think it's really one of his greater films. I think this is an important one to look at because, uh, like he's saying, it has a lot of interesting ideas, and he's really exploring some, like... <laughs> deep psychological issues Mm -hmm. and also visual strategies to sort of enter the psychological world of what happens when we engage with a a painting. Uh, And so all these things that have been maybe more on the sidelines, like uh, the dancers in Suspiria and that kind of that art environment, even in opera, uh, he's kind of going, penetrating and going inside that. Uh, and it, it is different than his other work, uh, as much as that it's you know similar obsession. So I mean, I I uh, I would agree with you know this is one if you're interested in Argento, this is one to uh, uh, check out. Yeah, I would say just honestly for me, besides the film we're about to talk about and the kind of recognized classics, I would say this is this is the best of his work for me. I would put this probably in my top ten um, behind. Yeah, like I said, uh, the classics, uh, Inferno, Tenebrae, Suspiria, Deep Red, Opera, uh, Phenomena, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and then this, and Dark Glasses, I think. Uh, If you like Dark Glasses, give Stendhal Syndrome a watch. You're putting that up high? Oh, yeah, I'd put that in the top ten, for sure. I I think I'm going to switch Stendhal Syndrome and Dark Glasses. Um, I have Dark Glasses at nine, Stendhal Syndrome at ten right now. I think I'm going to switch them. The the rewatch really sold Stendhal Syndrome for me. Say, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't put Dark Glasses that high, which is his most recent film. Uh, Steve, have you had a chance to see that yet? I have not seen that. There are a few I haven't seen. Uh, Dark Glasses, Dracula in 3D. You can pass on uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might watch it tonight. I'm excited. Yeah. I, well, I want to see it in 3D. I don't have glasses. Okay, well, we are going to wrap up the discussion of the Stendhal Syndrome here. We're going to be back tomorrow with part two, looking at Dario Argento's The Phantom of the Opera. We'll see you then.